Hey, happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back to the I-5 Corridors Traffic Report. Tyson Alger here, joined by two of my favorite people. We have Andrew Greif of the Los Angeles Times and Ken Go, longtime Oregonian sports writer. And we're just going to kind of talk talk through it, talk through the last week of, of conference realignment, of what's happened with Oregon and Oregon State, and uh, the overall kind of reflections of uh, a pretty monumental week in, in college football. So uh, before we get into that, Andrew and Ken, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. Uh, uh, glad to glad to see you guys. Thanks for having us. It's nice to still feel relevant. <laughs> Even <laughs> if it's only in your mind and my mind. Yeah. The Pac-12 may no longer be around in its original form, but I'm glad part of our former sports desk is together again. Yeah, it's... Um, it's still weird covering this thing, guys. It's it feels like the, uh, everything had been kind of heading this way with USC and UCLA's move last year, but for it all to kind of just blow up on Friday, um, as as two guys who have covered a lot of Pac-12 and Pac-10 football, um, what were just your your instant reactions on on Friday as not only Oregon joined the Big Ten, but it looked like Oregon State uh, was getting left behind. We'll we'll, we'll start with you, Ken. Oh, sad. I think mostly um, for for about 20 years, I was the Oregonian uh, writer for the conference, first the Pac-10 and then the Pac-12. And I have been to all those campuses, uh, at least the old Pac-10 campuses uh, for extended periods back when I was doing that. And it was uh, a very collegial atmosphere. And uh, I think there was a sense that the conference, you know, there were some differences between the schools, but in the main, they were pulling together in the same direction. And there, there was a shared history and, and tradition there. Um, and it all got blown up and it got blown up because people are chasing money, not, not anything else. There was no attempt at um, trying to stabilize. Well, maybe they did try, but in the end, they didn't try to, to stabilize that tradition and that camaraderie and that uh, shared direction. Um, and it, it all became a, a scramble for money. And it seemed just seemed real unseemly to me. Um, money for what? Right. I mean, uh, you can only pay your coach so much and, you know, your locker room can only be so nice. So in the end, you're, you're just piling up money. And, and the NCA has already fixed it. So they're not paying the athletes. Right. They, what, what they did was allow NIL, which allows the boosters to pay the athletes, which is something they used to be against. And now to avoid paying their athletes, they're allowing this to happen. It seems to me um, the whole thing just needs to be blown up and we need to, to accept what division one, a college football is. And that's a professional sport and treat it like a professional sport, which means paying the athletes and, and letting the schools that can afford to do that, um, do it. And the ones that can't, uh, play it at a different level and and let's just you know cut the crap we'll cut the hypocrisy and let's let's you know let, let's stop playing this stupid dance that that these guys are amateurs and that um the more money you make for your program the better because i mean what does this have to do with higher education i mean um in all this talk about realignment and and you know who what's best for which school i never hear anybody talking about academics or or you know what does this do for your architecture department or your your business department? I mean, it's just it's insane to me. Anyway, that that's a long winded thing, but that that's sort of my thoughts. Yeah, that's I think that I, I've seen this pointed out before, but I think it's worth repeating that it sort of speaks to what Ken's talking about and how absurd some of this is. That 
some of the teams that are quote unquote left behind in the pack formerly known as the pack 12 are Cal and Stanford. I mean, teams that have racked up dozens and Stanford's case, several hundred um, or at least more than 100 NCAA titles. They're, you know, academically elite. So and it's, it's, it's an eyeball thing, right? It's a television rating thing. And that's, that sort of is, it struck me as um, sort of maybe the peak of the absurdity where schools have that, have that pedigree and have everything you, I think you would want, if you sort of bit a blind item, if you took the name off of and said, you know, here's the endowment or here's the, the, the reputation, here's the national championships, here's the history, um, here's the media market. And then you, I think people would say, oh yeah, we want that in our, in our conference, but it's uh so yeah it's it was sad for me too i think that um it's interesting like i've gone through the thought exercise of if you would just put the pac-12 schools um on the east coast you know this this probably never happens because they're in a better quote-unquote window so it's it's a measure it seems to me like a measure of geography and that's too bad um i think that i sort of didn't blame oregon and washington for getting out to in what they thought was the the place to stay relevant and the place to have the money coming in for whatever they think they need that for. But it is indisputably a total bummer. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which I, is, I, you know. I, I think with Oregon, you can make the argument that basically with everything that they've done for the last, since Phil opened up his pocketbook in the late nineties, like that kind of set the ducks on a path where they, they kind of had to make this move if it presented it to it, basically if it presented to themselves, right. Because I feel like that university more than anything is now national championship or bust. And it seems like that's kind of what they've um, kind of pinned their whole reputation to is, is being amongst the, the, the top fives in college football or, or anything else. Right. Are they, are they top five? I, I, I don't, I don't think so, but I think that's the, I think that's long been the carrot that's been dangling in front of that fan base since probably the chip kelly days and i it's probably it's probably grossly inflated i think they're a program that can kind of peak and contend maybe once every five to ten years at that level but the to be able to sustain that type of thing and with them going to the big 10 i i think i think it'll be a lot of fun for them if they continue to win a lot of football games but if they start losing those games to penn state and michigan and then ohio state and all those programs that have done that for a long long time like what what's left there like what's left of your university's identity if it doesn't go right here yeah if you had in some ways it's maybe buyer beware because um or you know in the pack 12 with an automatic bid you, out of that league you would i would think that that's easier to reach the playoff if to stay um if that league were to had to stay then go to the big 10 obviously where there's so much more competition and just more teams and um so it's a tricky thing where it makes sense financially but also you need to be competitive and does going to the place where you get more money does that hinder the competitiveness and in football which obviously is the big revenue driver i think oregon will still be really really you know be able to punch above its weight but um i think that they would on on average probably have more bites at the apple at a college football playoff appearance in a league where they had a smaller league like the pac-12 where they know it so well they'd have an auto bid this might just be me being naive, but I I kind of just expected Oregon to do something different, you know, whether it be, uh, be being the premier team with that Apple deal or even going independent or just just something that wasn't so much 
we're joining everybody else because we're trying to get in line sort of thing. And I understand the money in the big 10 is ridiculous, but you know, for, for a school that has so often prided itself on kind of going against the grain or, or being unique or finding a different solution to something. Um, yeah. I, again, it's probably naive of me to, to, to put myself in Rob Mullins or the president's shoes and, and trying to turn down that sort of cash, but it just, I was kind of looking for Oregon to, to back up its reputation there of, of trying to innovate, but maybe, maybe, maybe that's just wrong. I think it, the move is delusional, to be honest. I, after joining the big 10 to, to see that that's the, the money isn't worth some of the drawbacks you get. And, and to pick up on um, Andrew's point too, um, this is just football, right? I mean, that that's all anybody's thinking about. And um, Oregon's got a world-class program and track and fields i mean so what happens to that and and oregon state which is being left behind has done a great job in sports like gymnastics and and baseball and and crew and what happens to those sports where do they go wrestling i mean what it was a great point that um <clears throat> somebody made on twitter what happens to the oregon state wrestling program now with with the device of the pac-12 where do they go and and they're pretty good so so all these other sports and these athletes, and and as Andrew pointed out, th this Olympic movement, which Stanford and Cal were sort of in the front of, what happens now to that? And it's all this scramble for football yeah. money. I mean, it's just, um, uh, it's appalling to me, to be honest. I, it makes me want to go watch Division three sports and back where they, the kids still play for the love of the game. What what really struck me, uh, yes, yesterday I was in Corvallis and they were doing the the media tour of the renovated Reeser Stadium, and it was spectacular. Like I was I was blown away by the project. It's it's been just about two years in the making for them. Um, yeah, it's it's comfy. It's not a hundred thousand seats like like some Oregon fans want Watson to be expanded to, which they would never fill. <laughs> Um, but it's, it, it's got all the modern amenities that you would need in the college football office, uh, uh, facility. Um, it adds stuff that includes, um, usage for students across campus with the wellness center. They have a welcoming center. Um, they put in new locker rooms for the visiting team, even like they, they took care of all the little things. They have a really good football team that plays in that stadium. They have a really good coach and they did this at kind of the bottom of the barrel in terms of PAC 12 budget. Like this isn't. They're not playing on the same playing field as Oregon and USC and all those schools already within the Pac-12, but they were able to accomplish this with what they were currently making. And it just strikes me that that everyone's just saying that this wasn't enough. Like this crown jewel that Oregon State was able to unveil yesterday within the confines of what they're making right now, like that's just not good enough money for everybody else. You got to go double that or triple that in, in the next conferences. Um, it's going to make for really interesting football in Corvallis this year, I think, because uh, I, I think that's probably if you're a neutral football fan, that's probably the team to cheer for this year. That's what I was going to say. I, I think this year is going to be the last football season that we can really uh, say is sort of like normal times before everything goes crazy again. And so I do it's I think the Pac-12 is going to be just an amazing conference this year because there's going to be so much animosity, you would think, and so much buildup of tension and frustration you know, coming out from the AD suites, uh, spilling on the sideline. I just want to see what that looks like. You know, I, are people just sort of going to re remove the facade and talk yeah. about, you know, how, yeah, we're pissed off when Washington State goes into, you know, 
wherever I don't know their schedule, but if, I'm sure they're going to some some university that's <laughs> headed to the Big Ten. Yeah. You know, what's Jake Dicker going to say? He's been, I love I loved what he said uh, all week, the Washington State coach, about, you know, what this is all about and where it leaves their, their program. So just from an entertainment perspective uh, and sort of people being real, I think this could be a really interesting football season. Uh, I'd like to obviously see more of these matchups continue in the future, and that is obviously up in the air. But so that's why I'm trying to savor this year as much as possible. If, if you look at it from – a strictly dollars and cents and TV market perspective, which I guess is where we are now. <clears throat> uh, Oregon State and Washington State probably don't belong in in the Big Ten or the Big Twelve because they don't bring that. They're they're probably a better fit in the Mountain West Conference. Um, but the problem is they were succeeding. Oregon State was succeeding despite all their disadvantages in the Pac-12, and they were and they are set up to have a, a really good season. And now with the lack of revenue available in the mountain West, if that's where they end up, are they going to be able to sustain that? Are they going to be able to afford Jonathan Smith and, and his staff? And, and um, you know, what happens I, eventually when it shakes out that, you know, maybe the mountain West is a better home for them. Maybe they can, they can be perennially successful there and, and qualify for the playoff, but there's going to be a shakeout period. That's going to be really painful. Andrew, uh, during your time covering uh, Oregon and the Pac-12, what was what's your, kind of your if, if someone asks you like what was your quintessential memory of of the Pac-12? I, and that and that's a very large question. Or, or if, even if there's just something like fondly that you look back on of just saying like yeah that was that's what covering this conference was like. And the, I mean, it, I obviously see it from a very compressed perspective compared to Ken's. So. I, I can't – I'd love to ask – actually, I have a question for Ken about sort of the global view he sees of this, how we got here. But for me, from what I remember, the Pac-12, and even when I was a student, it was the Pac-10 covering it. I mean, I have some pretty – I mean, I just think that the conference was amazing in terms of footprint. You know, I just love the road trips. We would – because, you you know, people talk about Washington State, oh, Pullman. But, I mean, Pullman had its charms, and I loved Spokane and driving down. So there was not a bad – city i, I had a really nice night in spokane with you th- with you two a couple of, uh, gosh i was gonna say a couple of years ago that's probably eight or nine years ago now but <laughs> yeah uh i think we went to a, a, a barbecue joint and i don't think i don't think i think ken was uh appalled by how little we ate um i remember right <laughs> but I'd, I'd been with some people that could really put away food at that place so i guess <laughs> i didn't hold up to john hunt George yeah, Porter, <laughs> yeah. I just think that the road trips, you know, you get the variety of it. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I have one that's like always sticks with me. It's not like a highlight moment that would go on like the Pac-12's banner page. But I remember covering a game at Cal when I was a student and they were renovating the press box and it was a downpour. And so there was no fixed roof. And when we checked in uh, at the, to get our credential, they handed us a box lunch and then they handed us a, like a garbage bag. And I'm, I'm like, what's this for? This is my first Pac-12 slash Pac-10 road trip as a writer because I'd never been to an opposing stadium other than Reeser, uh, but never in a working form. And I was like, well, what's this about? And they said, oh, that's to put your laptop in because we don't have a roof. <laughs> and so, you know, we, I basically like stick my head in the bag to write uh, between plays and then look up, watch it, stick my head back in, write notes down. And I had my personal computer because I was a student and I was just thinking 
All my term papers are on here. All my homework <laughs> is on here. This thing is going to get fried. I'm getting paid about $17 for like three days of work to go down and cover this game. So I thought the, the, I was pretty sure that the, the, um, the appeal of journalism was, was really wearing off at that moment on me. Uh, but <laughs> that should have been a was, sign, Andrew. That, that, <laughs> it was a warning shot, <laughs> but that was, that always sticks with me. But, um, I mean, there's, I just enjoyed the people too. I felt like, uh, um, I, I it felt like there was a lot of, um, really compelling matchups over the history because I grew up on this conference. So I think that's why it sticks with me more is because I, I heard stories about the pack eight and the pack 10 and, you know, watching Bill Walton go into Oregon um, for a, for then a conference game. And so obviously you'll still have that conference game now, but it's just a little bit different um, when it used to be just the West coast teams, but yeah. You, you said you had a question for Ken. Oh, I, I mean, I was just, I think that George Klyavkov has gotten a lot of, obviously, blame for how we got here the last two years. And But, I mean, you've been around with the Tom Hansen era, the Larry Scott era. Like, when when this was crumbling last week, did your mind go at all to, oh, my gosh, they could have avoided this any number of ways had they just, you know, done this or that? Did you think, did you think about that at all? I'm just giving your yeah, decades I, of watching the conference. <clears throat> I wonder how much of that was his fault. I, you know, the he's taken a lot of abuse, obviously, but um, the people running the show are the presidents, right? Yeah. And um, my feeling was uh, that the presidents who may or may not have a big interest in college athletics or knowledge of college athletics, I mean, they they have to care about it because so many of their alums do. And so much of the, the donor money cares about athletics, but they may not know that much. And I, I sense on a lot of the presidents, there really was an interest in keeping the conference together because of what it represented academically. And I think maybe that tied his hands a little bit about what he could do. Um, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that because, you know, I'm retired and I wasn't in the, the middle of all this. I was just reading uh, what other people were writing. And a lot of it was really interesting, but it was all presented from the standpoint of what does this mean uh athletically on the football field and <clears throat> there was almost no uh mention of the academic in which is i think what a lot of the presidents cared more about until they they didn't until they couldn't anymore but it's it's sort of sad i think i mean that because the, the pac-12 did try to set itself apart from some of the other conferences because they did at least pay lip service and i, I think in some cases really believe that they had an academic mission that was separate from the athletics I'm I'm curious as kind of transition into what this means for the sports outside of football. Um, Ken, you have covered track and track and field for decades. Andrew, you ran track at uh, Oregon. Um, that's Oregon's premier program. That's not on the football field. What were you, what are your guys' thoughts on just not only does this mean for you know travel schedule for for that sport, but just even just having such a monumental shift there for a program like that at Oregon. Yeah. I don't think uh, performance wise, it's going to matter much. The sort of the trend um, for most of the major college track programs is to devalue the dual meet experience. And, and what you do is you ship your athletes around the country to places where they can get good marks. I don't think 
it's going to alter that. I think the the big meets that Oregon would send its athletes to in Arkansas or uh, Stanford or Drake or Penn, uh, those are still going to be there, and it's going to be sort of business as usual. What, but I think it's going to hurt, and and this was already starting to slide under the the current Oregon uh, coaching regime uh, with Jerry Schumacher. Is there aren't going to be many home meets, and and the who, the people that are going to lose are the the fans who um, the fans made Oregon unique in college track and field because they would come to watch good track and, and especially good college track. Eugene's still going to have the professional component. Uh, track Town USA is the organizing committee, and they'll, they're still going to bring in good big meets. But the college track fan experience is going to go away, I think. Yeah, I can't hit all the points I was going to hit. I mean, I'm reading, I'm finally reading the Bill Bowerman uh, biography <laughs> by Kenny Moore. I'm only like 16 years late. Um, but. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, like the era of the dual meet has was gone even before I was in college. And that's now pretty, pretty long ago. So don't do um, that to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so they'll still be able to recruit nationally a program like that. That's they can still pull nationally. They can still, but it will be the local effect. And and I, I, I sort of wonder if there's a knock on effect of that, because, you know, because of that community connection, because of the home track meets over the years, they've been able to develop a really strong community tie. And you see that, I think with the officials, I mean, all the local officials come out and they have a, they can pull any number of, you know, nationally qualified, you know, starts and, you know, just people who are excellent at running meets. And I sort of wonder is the next generation of, you know, 30 year olds, 40 year olds, are they going to want to kind of take their time out to do that? If there's really not many, kind of home meets. I mean, this is, that's a really small bore concern to have, but I, it's just something I thought about when you think about the community connection and why people show up to those meets. Um, Cause it is sort of more about, it's more than just the athletes, but it's about the community. And so maybe that has sort of a, a drag with, if your athletes are every week are, you know, out of the state um, or out of the, out of the time zone competing and not really in Eugene anymore. It's, it's just interesting in terms of, and this is probably not even amongst their worries at this point, but what sort of connection to campus are you having as an athlete? If you're gone, you know, two, two weeks of the month, every, every month, I mean, it's just, it's just going to be absurd for um, a softball team, which has to go like, I, I'm not, I have no idea how they're going to schedule this. I wonder if they do it in pods and just have them come go out to the East coast and play four or five teams at the same time time are they going to be taking you know bus trips from penn state to michigan to ohio state like it's uh there are a lot of particulars that are going to get uh smoothed over here in the coming weeks and we're probably going to be told that it's going to work and it's going to be fine but like we've already seen that the uh like oregon softball players have been pretty outspoken about how i mean they're just kind of getting left in the dust when it comes to uh being considered for this and their mental health and um I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that's going to be fun for anyone who's not making money off of this. Yeah, I guess if if you if you agree with what's happening now and and, and um, you want to avoid that, and I'm not sure it makes sense economically, but you probably add Cal and Stanford to the Big Ten, right? And then you you schedule in divisions, right? And so the minor sports can play Stanford and Cal and UCLA and USC a bunch of times and not really make many trips east. But I don't I don't even think they care about that. I don't think that's a consideration. It's all it's being driven by football. 
Um, well, while I have you guys here on track really quick, uh, yesterday the news out of Oregon camp was Micah Williams is has is walking onto the football team, uh, which is timely because last week I wrote a story about how fast freshman uh, cornerback Roderick Pleasant is. And um, I, I had to text Andrew a few times to get context for just how fast that kid is, but apparently he can fly. Uh, I just wanted to ask you guys, being track guys, being guys who've covered Oregon, who's the fastest player you've ever seen that, that has played both or not, not even played both, but just who's the fastest football player you've ever seen. Ken, I'll let you go first. I don't know. I mean, there've been a lot of fast football players. Um, well, Michael James was really fast. Kenyon Barton was fast. Um, you know, uh, I'd say maybe Devin Allen, Devin Allen is very yeah, fast. He, he could fly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he's known as a hurdler, but he's a, Pretty damn fast hundred meter runner too. Um, uh, I mean, I always sort of laughed when when uh, football players would talk about how fast they were because um, most of them weren't as fast as the best track sprinters. It, it's a rare uh, guy that can do that, um, uh, but Devin Allen could. And and uh, one of the things I worry about Makai Williams is um, one, he's hurt a lot just as a track athlete and now he's going to a contact sport and two he's small i mean he's he's thick but he, he's a little guy he's uh michael james was small he's smaller than michael james so um i don't know where that what position they're going to play him i haven't seen that is he going to be a receiver defensive back i mean whatever but um uh he's a tiny guy you know jj burden is a guy that uh and he might be before your guy's time but he was a a really good track athlete a, a horizontal jumper and, and pretty fast and um, I did a story on uh, uh, towards the end of my days at the Oregonian on uh, Demarcus Simpson, who was a long jumper and uh, talked about playing football. He was about Makai Williams' size, and JJ uh, emailed me and said, "Don't let him do it. It's just, it's just <laughs> um, the toll on your body playing football is just too much for for a guy that size." So, I mean, that that's my concern about Makai Williams. But it, anyway, that's long winded. It, it, uh, Andrew's actually done been a college athlete so maybe he should answer that maybe he's got a better answer well, than me. I, again we need to qualify college athlete in air quotes because it was it was a very low level of it. but I think that um, <laughs> I remember uh, Jordan Kent I mean we, yeah, have, to, we have to yep. go there he was a guy because he, he did he did latch on in the pros with on um, you know he some did. yep some practice squads with Seattle and whatnot like I think he, he would be interesting to talk to about it's, it's the rare guy like Ken said, who can, um, who can kind of actually be at fast in pads. Uh, Cause you have to translate it. You know, you're not just running in a straight line or off a curve. There's it's about stopping and starting and acceleration and deceleration. So I think that's a real adjustment for the fastest guys is um, the change of direction. But Ken, I think did well, obviously he he, an NFL team, multiple NFL teams took chances on him um, as a receiver. I think about Pat Johnson uh, from the mid nineties. Again, this is like my wheelhouse. I was really young. I remember my dad who was a high school track coach saying like, Oh, this Pat Johnson guy is like a track fast guy. And I, for some reason, one of my like memories that stands out watching Oregon growing up is when Pat Johnson 
and I don't remember what season this was, but he like laid out for a touchdown catch to beat Washington in Husky Stadium. Yeah, I covered that game. Yep. I was I was I wasn't gonna say if you were there, Ken, but I Yeah, I was, yeah. It was a hell of a catch. He he was a definitely a guy that could do both for sure. Yeah. So that 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 was the first name that I thought of. Um but yeah, and of course Devin. Of course Devin. He was also the guy like Jordan Kent who could actually proven to to marry the football with the raw speed. But it's a tricky combo. And Not that I would really other, know about either. One other factor, too, <laughs> is the contact. I mean, when you're in track, you're not – people aren't trying to take your head off. And you're not being asked to block linebackers. So if, if you're a receiver – now, Jordan and and Devin Allen are bigger guys. I mean, they're they're solid. Um, yeah. Makai Williams is not a big guy. It was funny. I was talking with uh, new Oregon defensive back Tysheem Johnson at Oregon's Media Day last week, and I was kind of doing the – um, you know, who, who's the fastest guy on the team? And he's like, Oh, it's, it's, it's me, no doubt. And all right. How do you compare against Roderick? Uh, uh well, I, I don't really want to talk about that, but <laughs> they were, so, I mean, the, the, the football guys are aware there's a difference between football speed and track speed, but then they were saying, you know, if you get it down into like 20 and 30 yard bursts, like we're all pretty darn the same, like we're all elite athletes in that, in that sense, but it's when you get past 50, 60 yards, that's when Roderick would really kind of hit the jets and, and kind of use that sprinters, that professional speed to, to pull away. <laughs> Jaquiz yeah. Rogers was another one who was decent in track, uh, though he was better indoors because, and this speaks to what you're saying, uh, Tyson, that was 60 meters. Now at a hundred, he wasn't quite so good and, and 200, he wasn't that good at all. So one of the I remember- very, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I was just, this memory came back. I remember Der- a guy named Derek Jones, who was a USC transfer when I was uh, a freshman, I believe, at Oregon. And he was so fast, a wide receiver. I don't think he really, uh, I don't recall him playing a whole lot or having a, a like a big impact on the football uh, team. But I remember him coming out seemingly for track for like three days. And I just remember like seeing him show up. I'm sure it was spring practice time. And he was doing four by 100 meter handoffs. This is the before the 2006 PAC 10 championship meet, which was at Oregon. So that's why I remember it being a big deal because the team was really trying to win. And I thought we had a really good team. And I swear he came out for like only a few days of handoff practice. And sure enough, meet day, they win it. And Jordan Kent won the, uh, ran the final lap, but Derek Jones was on, ran a leg of it. And I remember thinking, I've been out here since September and working so hard and i have no i had no business being in a pack 10 entered in that meet and this guy shows up he's so you know physically gifted that basically two days of work he said yep okay here we go and he wins a pack 10 championship i that struck me as like wow some guy some guys have a just a totally different level of autism and i i don't think it really hit me until college that like these guys are just different yeah and it, it, but- Sorry, put Jordan Kent in that category too, because don't forget that was a guy who's a three sport athlete. I mean, he was right. just, he was on another level. I think the craziest crossover that I've seen was uh, when Johnny Lloyd went over from the basketball team to the football team, because every, every year you get, especially if it's a, a basketball player who's been around for a while, you kind of get the oh, so and so's taking some reps during the spring with the football team. You know, he was a decent receiver back in high school. Bob, I remember like Dwayne Benjamin came out one spring, and I think he quit the next day. Uh, how, how tall was Johnny Lloyd? Like five. Oh, five, eight, five, nine, five, eight, five, nine. And maybe like a buck 60, like buck 70. And yeah, he actually played a fair amount during that, uh, that 2014 season. Didn't he? Or was it 14 or 15? 14, I believe. Yeah. 14. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, 
ended up contributing to a title roster, different sport than track, but I, I do respect uh, those athletes that can pull off more than one thing. Tyson, I, not to bring us back to a, a long discussion of the realignment stuff again, but I am curious because you have so much more of a pull, like a pulse, I should say, on Oregon athletics. And again, this isn't to exclude Oregon State, but just because Oregon moving to the Big Ten, I, there's obviously going to be a drag on from the from the travel and academics on the athletes who are going into that conference. But is there a program that you think will actually be better from Oregon because of the move in terms of just the competition they'll be facing Pac-12 versus Big Ten. Um, a, a program that's better off at Oregon because of the move. I mean, I don't think Dana Altman is going to hate having to spend his road trips in the Midwest all that often. You know, like I, 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 I think I, I think basketball can kind of flourish there. I, I know they already like to schedule pretty big non-conference games, like from October through uh, January. But also, this is an Oregon team that. Uh, uh, always starts really slow. So maybe, uh, maybe you have an increased competition. Isn't great for them. I, I do think uh, baseball really has a chance to thrive here uh, under Mark Wazikowski. They've really had um, quite the uh, transformative uh, um, few years since uh, uh, moving on from George Horton. But if you look at the average college baseball map for the postseason, there's like one or two teams like West of the Mississippi that ever make the postseason. It's a very East coast concentrated um uh, selection committee it, it seems like so I, I think baseball and softball actually I, softball was in a pretty darn good position in the pack and the pack was one of the best softball conferences in the country so I'm not going to go there um but yeah I mean that's about it like I mean like I don't think this is going to be good for Oregon volleyball I, I don't think this is going to be great for tennis I don't think this is going to be your great like I just there's not, not eyeballs on those sports and there's not going to be more eyeballs on those sports and now they're going to be flying to the East coast all the time. The the one thing that I was going to ask both of you is if Oregon's now getting monies by the handful, where would you, what would make you guys think that this was a success for this Eugene community? Or basically where do you want to see that money going other than just building up football facilities? Well, you know, I, apparently the, Beach volleyball team needs a facility. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Maybe some doors on the bathrooms. I think it'll just keep going to football. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. Um, I, was, that was the trick question, Andrew. I, yeah. I mean, they already have – think of all – in terms of facilities, They pretty much every program has, in, except for beach volleyball, has a not only a facility but a re- recently renovated or completely reconstructed facility. So I don't know in terms of like capital projects uh, what they would really need it for. Again, I don't have the pulse of it, but yeah. um, I, it's, it's just, you know, they, they always, they always kind of throw on the line of like, this is great for not only the student athletes, but for alumni in the community. And it's like, yeah, it's just putting football on a bigger pedestal. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wonder about just them making this move, obviously thinking about a, uh, a future will where Phil Knight, you know, isn't able to um, just kind of deliver gobs of cash. Um, you know, he, I just sort of wonder about the, this, if they viewed this as the sustainability, you know, 20 years from now, are we going to be able to still be getting big checks from our donors? Um, the donor yeah. base, you know, basically replacing a bunch of donor cash with TV network cash. Um, I sort of wonder if that's 
one strategic way they looked at it, but um, yeah, it's, I, I think that it's going to be, again, I don't blame Morgan at all for doing what they do. Like they, if you, if you view yourself as a, as a major college football program, then I guess you got to follow where the money is, but, and, and for Oregon state too, you know, there is life outside of the pack of uh, the power five or what was the power five. I think, it, you know, we've seen Boise state thrive in a lot of ways, but we also don't know really, we don't really pay attention to Boise state's other programs to Ken's point earlier about wrestling and, right. and, and gymnastics. Like we don't think about the knock on effect of those budgets of what it takes to keep those competitive. We only think about football. So I think that they could be in whatever iteration of whatever conference they land in still, you know, competitive and, maybe they're even more competitive. Um, maybe they're having 10 win seasons or nine win seasons, but uh, it will be, I'm sure it'll be much harder throughout the whole department. One thing um, Phil Knight has obviously has done a lot for Oregon athletics and he's built these palatial facilities, you know, the, the academic center and the uh, Hayward field and the what how Hatfield Dowling complex and all that. But what he didn't do was provide a lot of money to maintain those facilities. And I think um, that's been an issue there. Um, you got these great facilities and a nickel and dime maintenance budget. So maybe they could apply some of that money to make sure those facilities don't deteriorate. Hey, Ken, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking at your, your background here and you have a bunch of your press passes hanging up and I'm, I'm curious in, in your house, is there any, is there any, uh, piece of memorabilia or anything that you, you just love the most that represents, you know, what you did for so much of your career? Um, you know, it was all sort of pretty fun. Obviously the Olympics were, um, a cool thing though. There are a lot of work and, um, I'm glad I'm not going to do another one and good luck <laughs> to you, Andrew. Um, I, I think, you know, what, as, as my career went on, what I liked most was, covering track meets at in Eugene and um, the <clears throat> Olympic trials and the uh, Pac-12 championships and those kind of things were fun. They were, uh, as, as my time went on, uh, accessibility to the athletes got more and more difficult in sports like football and men's basketball. When I started, um, which, you know, was before you guys were born, um, you, you could pretty much talk to whoever you wanted to, whenever you wanted to. And, that slowly evolved to now where it's sort of the school's call as to who you talk to and when you talk to them. But with track, it was still pretty wide open through most of my time. And um, the athletes were engaging and interesting um, for all the way from the college athletes to the pros. And so a lot of those meets in Eugene were, were, you know, my favorite memories. And in particular, uh, and again, this might, Andrew might've been there, uh, cause he knew guys on the team. I, I can't, did you cover the 2008 trials, Andrew? Yeah, I was a student. Okay. The, uh, 800 meter, uh, men's final for that is probably my favorite sports moment. Not only, um, people I covered went one, two, three, uh, and in an, an upset, they, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. And, and then the way it happened with, uh, they all three of them looked out of the race with, 300 meters to go, which in that race is often you, if you're out of it, then you are out of it. And, and yet they uh, all came from behind to, to win in stunning fashion. And and then the, the crowd reaction was unbelievable. And that, that's one day when, when the place was packed and um, it's about as loud as I can remember uh, anything out. I mean, indoors, obviously when you're in, in an indoor arena, 
the noise is magnified with the bands and everything. But outdoors, I've never heard it that loud. And you, you talk about Husky Stadium when it's full or Austin Stadium when it's full. It didn't approach that. I mean, people were – it was and it wasn't hype because people were genuinely excited because the people in that stands – one knew they were seeing some extraordinary, and two, they were local guys who were winning. And, and a lot of the people in the stands had watched these guys compete in Eugene for, in some cases, for years at least for that season. And um, it was it was a uh, a pretty cool moment. So sorry, that's pretty long winded. But oh, no, no, that's that's great. Uh, you guys both spent a fair a fair amount of time at, at Hayward last year with with. That I mean, it was basically this the summer to summer of the new Hayward. Um, what what were you guys' kind of impressions on just the new facility and and you know talking about that great memory you have in two thousand eight? Like, does does that facility have the potential to to do something like that? Go ahead, Andrew. I've, I've talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it. I think it still has that potential. Um, it's it's more intimate than I thought by pictures. Like when I stepped in there first time as a person, I thought, oh, this isn't as cavernous as I as I thought. It's still the same footprint in a lot of ways. I think it still has that chance, but I think it goes back to what Ken mentioned earlier that there's just this sort of thread, the community that you can't to have that happen, that thread of the community can't be broken. And so you need you need buy-in. And there's I feel like every year Ken sees them too. There's always stories about kind of fatigue with athletes coming to, to Eugene and the travel times and the expenses. And, and that's all totally real. But, um, I also, um, I also think that it's hard to find that connection in other cities, you know, like I'm sure that the USA track and field would love to have a trials near Los Angeles in 2028 or maybe even next year. I mean, who knows? They haven't announced next year's trial next year's trials yet. Cause I think they would love to find w- other cities. Maybe there aren't Eugene. They'd be interested uh, but I just be, I don't think that you put, just because you put it somewhere else, it's um, going to have the same, like, uh, you know, robust attendance. And so, Eugene, there have been a lot of big beats there. I totally know why people maybe say, well, why do I need to go see this meet? You know, this this year's Prefontaine Classic. I'll go to next year's trials. I'll go to next year's pre. But it is it is special because of the, um, of the community aspect and just how knowledgeable people are. Like Ken said, it, I think that's why people were so amazed at the dive um, by, and I'm forgetting his name now, Christian Harrison Smith. Harrison Smith, yeah, had died, you know, because they knew that he had no business, you know, probably qualifying with the Olympics, and so that's that's something that's hard to replace, and that's why Oregon and Hayward Fields always have the potential to be kind of a loud, um, welcoming place for track meets in the United States, but it'll it still takes some work to do to do that. Um, I would and- say that. The stadium is a much prettier stadium, and in a lot of ways, it's more spectator friendly. Um, I always felt sorry for women who had to go to the bathroom at the old Hayward Field because the line stretched forever. I mean, they're just—if you didn't want to use the porta potty, um, you didn't have many options. Concessions are miles better than they used to be. The seats are more comfortable. Um, if you're but, disabled, you can actually see. see well, the yeah, if you're not a sports writer, I mean, the media, <laughs> media. Tribune that they said is inaccessible to anybody who's needs a wheelchair. Sure. Um, but uh, the, they've lost a lot of the charm too, that, that the old stadium had. I probably the best example I could have with, well, I can think of two, I guess, you know, Matt court and Matthew Knight arena. Um, uh, Matthew Knight arena is a, a good facility, but there's a charm that isn't present. That was at the old Matt court. 
And then um, in baseball, uh, the old Hayward Field was like Wrigley Field or or Fenway Park. I mean, it was uh, there was a lot that wasn't very comfortable and and was inconvenient about it, but there was a charm there that that is irreplaceable. And I th- there was a soul to it that I don't think the new one has. I mean, again, sort of long winded, but no, it, and that's that's I I was about to make the 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 Matthew Knight Arena comparison because that's. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great facility. Like as, as someone who is not from Oregon, who showed up and got this job at the Oregonian and was like, Hey, you get to cover Oregon basketball. Oh my God, this, this is a great facility. I I could work here every day. And it's, it, it, it kind of feels like a show home at times. Like it's, it's, it's very pretty, but it's just, you know, when, uh, when the ducks have been at the, their absolute best, like when the men's team went to the final four or you had, Sabrina UNESCO playing there was a lot of energy in that building but it just I, I feel like and this might be something that previews for the football program you either have to be like the very best to have people come out or there's just not a whole lot of uh, foundation left to it yeah MacArthur Court was an experience I, um, I can remember covering games there in the I don't know the 80s and 90s when UCLA would come in with a really good team but those players were scared to death I mean they literally were scared I think they they thought they were going into deliverance land. I mean, they, they, they were intimidated. And I can remember uh, Casey Jacobson, who I, I think is now a commentator, but he was a really good player for Stanford talking about trying to inbound the ball in front of the student section and having people pulling the hairs on his leg. I mean, and, and the, the scoreboard literally did used to bounce when people got all excited. It, it was one of the most unique atmospheres of, for a big time college basketball program that I've ever seen. You could never build an arena like that anymore. Like building codes wouldn't allow you to have <laughs> like two decks of fans directly on top of one another. I mean, I feel like if you were in the front row of the upper deck, you're basically looking straight down. Yeah. No, it was like scary. Old, like all the like, out of bounds line. Yeah. So I mean, we're going what... up there and thinking, God, this is scary. <laughs> my my dream was once um, once Arizona State created its Division One hockey program. I was hoping that that would spread west a little bit more, and then that would be the ultimate, uh, the big renovation of uh, MacArthur Court and turn it into a hockey rink. But um, actually, I, I had a mailbag question this week. Someone asked if uh, if Oregon moved into the Big Ten finally means Wisconsin won't finish at the bottom of the Big Ten hockey anymore. <laughs> I put in a request to Oregon. Uh, hockey is not among the considerations of expansion at at this time at the at, for uh, NCAA, but one can dream. <laughs> Can I ask a, a I, I mean, I love asking these questions offline. So uh, I'd love to. You can to call, you too. can just call me, Andrew. Like, like, <laughs> like we're, we're friends, you know? Well, I feel like we haven't talked about this, you know, the, the game formerly known as the civil war. Right. Uh, and I just want to. The big football you know, game, according to Bill, Bill Warren. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's, I think the stuff about it's obvious. It's super sad if it goes away. Who knows? I think Jonathan Smith said, we'll wait and see. I get all that. I just want to know Ken's favorite civil war he's ever covered. The which civil war? Favorite. Oh, uh, well, the one that's that stands out in my mind the most was um, 1994 when um, going into the game, Oregon thought it had to win to go to the Rose Bowl. And that, that was when Oregon hadn't been to the Rose Bowl since, God, I don't know, World War One, And so um, – it was a big deal. Now, during the game, um, uh, it came out that because of what happened elsewhere, Oregon would have gone win or lose. But the players playing that, I don't think knew. And 
Um, Oregon State really wanted to keep Oregon from going to the game. It really mattered to them. It, it wasn't a great Oregon State team, but they were tricky to play because they were running the wishbone then and uh, teams on the in the West Coast, they, they didn't see option football. So um, that game went back and forth and, and Oregon State scored to take a lead late and then um, Oregon went right back down the field and answered and then or Oregon State had one more. I'm speaking from memory, so I hope I have it wrong. I mean, there was all kinds of fun stuff in that game. Kristen McLemore, who was uh, Oregon star receiver, had gotten hurt. And um, at the time, because um, it was back in the dark ages, there weren't medical facilities at the stadium. So Oregon State's uh, medical staff put him on a uh, like a, a golf cart and took him across stadium to to get checked. And he was, uh, uh, they checked him out and said he was okay to go back. So he's coming back, you know, through the all the Oregon state fans that are outside the stadium and they're screaming at him and he's yelling back and he gets into the game and, and makes some key plays. Uh, and then Oregon state still has a chance to win. Right. So um, th they have a play called the midline option, uh, which was unique then. I, th I think other teams do it now a lot where, you know, in option football, uh, at least at the time you, you leave a player unblocked at the end of the line of scrimmage. Right. And then, that guy has to make a decision on the play. Do you take the quarterback or do you take the pitch guy? And you you, you use whatever his decision is against him and let him take him out of the play. Well, Oregon State at the time uh, with the midline option, we're leaving a player on the inside of the line unblocked, which was uh, unique, at, at, like I say, at the time. And um, they ran a midline option and it, it looked like it was going to go. The, the quarterback had a, a line. I think the quarterback's name was Don Shanklin. Um, but he stepped on the foot of the Oregon State offensive lineman that had pulled out to leave the the lane free and and fell and that so that that's how the game came that's how it was decided and afterwards uh, I was covering Oregon State and their uh, media interview area was in the weight room in the Valley Football Center that uh, overlooks the north side of the field and I remember standing there with the Oregon State players who were waiting to be interviewed and they were watching Oregon celebrate on their field and it was it was such a good example of one the exuberance of the Oregon fans and then the utter devastation of Oregon State which had nothing to play for but but beating Oregon and it it was such a good comment on the rivalry and, and how much it, that game mattered and, and uh, how important it was to to both programs not just because of the stakes of the game because it was the rival and um, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a scene like that again because um, if the Civil War or whatever we're calling it now is played, um, it's not going to be the end of the season. It's not going to – people's hopes for that season aren't going to hinge on it. It's probably going to be the, the season opener, and it's it's just going to be a non-conference game. And it, and all that uh, passion and, and rivalry, which are things I used to love about college football at, at that level, you know, I, I see a lot of it going away now. And so, again, long-winded, but – that's that's my enduring memory and, and that's what I think we're losing now with this the the 2020 season and I'm putting that in quotation marks is what they played eight games or during the COVID year six games um with no fans in the stands that was um that was a really depressing year to cover I mean it was a pretty depressing time overall but 
the when Oregon State beat the Ducks and it was an upset and there was nobody in the stadium and it was in Reeser. Um, but then right at the end of the game for then just to hear the car horn starting to ring out around all of Corvallis and you could see cars doing laps around and it was, you know, it went on for probably about 10 minutes of just horns and having been in a completely, you know, sterile football stadium for that game and just hearing that, like, you know, I, I don't look back on that season or, or that year fondly at all, but that's, that's a memory that really sticks with me because I mean, it's, it was unique. It was, it, it meant something to that community. Um, yeah. I, I think that's the one that, which, which is, I'm, I'm not happy to have like something that specific, but one of my favorite things when I was at the Oregonian working with you guys was whenever we would have that inevitable civil war planning meeting at McMenamin's where uh, we would all to get together at 4 PM. We wouldn't probably start talking about any work until 5:30, and it'd be like, all right, who's got story ideas as the Alaskan in the group of all you guys who have either grown up here or worked here long enough to, to listen to, you know, Andrew or Ken or, or Jason quick or, um, uh, Sean Mager, all have you guys kind of pitch in like your guys' story ideas or memories. Like that was always like a, that was a very valuable time for me just to kind of to learn about this state and what it means and then just your guys' perspective. So those are always kind of the, the, the two things that'll stick with me about that, that rivalry. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great one. I hope they keep playing it. Um, having grown up in a place where it's very split between these allegiances it's all. Yeah, I remember growing up on that. It was a big weekend every year. So, and I, my parents, my dad went to both schools, and my mom went to Oregon State. So it was, it was, it was definitely uh, November, late, late November always had meaning to it, you know. And so I, I hope that continues. I hope it's not a. I hope it continues in some form or fashion, even if it's like a September non-con game. But it'll. Have, it's one way or another. Sort of the magic will be lost to a degree, and that's a huge, a huge bummer. We'll, uh, we'll get you guys out of here on this. Uh, I mentioned as part of the, the recent renovation, uh, new press box. It's, uh, it's gorgeous guys. It's, it's got space. You can see the entire field. Um, it's tiered. So there's no longer just staring at the back of somebody's head. I think they'll be able to fit everybody inside of it for once. But before we move on to that, I just want to get, what's your favorite or worst Oregon state press box memory, or even if it's just going up that rickety uh, elevator to get into the damn thing. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, I think that it was always the, well, I always loved going to research for the press box because I got to see my colleagues. Yes. Like the, the beat writers who covered Oregon state, who I never saw all fall, you know, we'd meet in August for a planning meeting for college football reporters at the Oregonian. And then we'd, go on our separate ways, you know, Oregon writers would go their schedule, Oregon state theirs. And so it was, I always enjoyed that game because you knew you're going to see Lindsay Schnell, Gina Mizell, Connor Letourneau. Uh, you, you, it was always, it felt like a reunion. So I always loved being there. What stuck with me was always the, uh, the relatively meager spread uh, for, <laughs> for food. I, I, <laughs> I I'll, Hey, I'll, I will eat anything. I will eat anything. Um, there are there are some NBA arena spreads that are uh, for for media that are pretty dire. I will say that. So, the Oregon State's hot dogs and like tomato soup were not exactly an exception. But I do remember that. <laughs> I do remember that and thinking, "Dang, I'm going to get hungry in about the third quarter." Yeah, the the food was. Uh, you knew what you were going to get, right? So you could be prepared. You could 
if you didn't want a burger or a hot dog and tomato soup, you you could bring what you want. Um, a couple other things. Uh, this was normal when I started, uh, but Oregon State was one of the last ones to stop doing it. The, the SIDs would come by with beer. Um, well, people were writing, so you had that option if you wanted. Um, the stories were better back Earlier then. in my it career, seems... I would partake. Uh, as I got older, that driving home at two in the morning after a couple beers didn't seem like such a good idea. Um, and then the other thing was you had to really time your bathroom breaks because um, there's one <laughs> bathroom, right? And there was uh, one urinal and one stall. So if, if you went at like the end of a quarter, you were waiting your turn. You might miss part of the action before you could take care of things and get back. So um, I, I hope I hope the new one's got a better uh, bathroom. It, 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 it has multiple. And I do think that that's the one thing that's being lost in the moderniz modernization of all these stadiums is just the the equalization that bath bathrooms bring to the community. I, I remember standing in line in the USC press box, which USC doesn't have a nice press box either. And I was waiting in line for the urinal behind Matt Leinert was in front of me and we were waiting for <laughs> Phil Knight to get out of the stall. And it was like the crazy, uh, that's probably the craziest moment in my career. It's just like, I'm waiting for Phil to get out of the can. To, like, <laughs> oh, at crypto.com arena um, down here where the Clippers and Lakers play their home games, the media room, I mean, it, there's a there's a, a pretty big media dining room, and then there's a smaller workroom with rows and rows of cubicles, probably like five rows. You probably can fit 80 people in there if you want, or maybe 50. I don't know. But uh, there is one men's bathroom, there's one women's bathroom, and they're they're very small bathrooms that basically are there for this whole area. And it's it's been a long running source of concern and frustration for a number ever since I've been down here. People say, "Oh my gosh!" One person one person said. Well, you know, I didn't feel so bad because one time I was waiting in line and Beyonce was waiting the women's <laughs> bathroom. And I thought, oh, wow, that's an amazing story. And then this year, I had that experience happen to me where uh, the game was about over. I was walking back my laptop before the end of the, of the game because I knew I had to hustle to the press conference room. So I just wanted to drop my laptop and my, and my charger. And I'm following like 10 feet behind Adele as she's looking for a bathroom and some, and some guys like, Oh, go this way, go this way. And it's like, you know, she's using the same bathroom that, you know, all of the schlubs are using next to the popcorn machine and like 50 feet from the Froyo machine. So I thought, wow, okay. Like, it's good to know that everyone's sort of inconvenienced by this, uh, by this setup. Well, well, little do you know, Adele tells the same story, but about getting <laughs> to use the same bathrooms as Andrew Greif. And, um, <laughs> I, I think that's about as as good of a spot that we're going to hit to end this thing. Um, Ken and Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I've learned a lot about Pac-12 football because of you guys and about writing. Not a whole lot about podcasting, unfortunately. I, I wish this would have been better. So uh, next next realignment, we'll 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 put it together. So thanks thanks for the yeah, time, guys. Thanks for having me, in, uh, Tyson, and good to see you, Andrew. I'm glad we could align. <laughs> oh, nice nicely done.